Galatians chapter 5. I touched on this last week, but I want to um, dig a little bit more into it. <laughs> Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. It goes like this. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. How many of you know that Jesus has set us free? Is that right? If he set us free, then that means at one point before we came to him, we must have been in bondage. Many of us realised that on our journey to Christ. Many of us realised that we were in bondage to different things and we needed a saviour, we needed helping, we needed someone to set us free. You know, there are a lot of us probably with testimonies where we didn't even realise that at the time. We didn't realise we were in bondage until maybe down the track when you wake up one day and you feel what it's like to be in the kingdom of God, you feel what it's like to have the peace, the joy of the Lord, and then you look back and you go, oh, wow, what I thought was normal was not exactly normal. I was like that. I, I didn't go looking for God. I didn't go searching for God. I didn't have this uh, spiritual hunger inside of me. Um, God went looking for me and chased me for many, many years all around New South Wales, different towns, through different people. Um, in the end, when I did get saved and gave my heart to Christ and I looked back, that's when I realised, oh my goodness, I was so bound up in so many areas. I was a bit depressed. I had a few things like that, but I just thought that was normal. That's what life is like for everybody. We all have feel this way. We all struggle with this. And I've since come to realise, yes, even though everybody may struggle and may, may feel that and go, it's not necessarily the way that we were intended. We were not created by God to carry a lot of the things that we carry outside of Christ. Is that right? We were not created to deal with a lot of the situations that we found ourselves confronted with uh, before we came to Christ. Even since, there are still things that come against us. But there's a lot of things that we faced, I faced before I got saved, that I was not created to face. Therefore, I was not equipped to be able to handle those things. Therefore, the way to handle them was to create walls or barriers or coping mechanisms, and 99.9% of them were unhealthy. I didn't realise it at the time because it was just life. It was how I lived my life. On the other side of that, though, now looking back, I can say that, you know what, I was in bondage, I was bound up, and I needed to be set free. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says that stand fast in that liberty, stand fast in the freedom that you have discovered since you came to Christ. A freedom where you have been set free from bondages and entanglements that held you back before you came to Jesus. He's writing this to believers. Keep in mind, Paul's writing this to believers. About AD 50... Uh, was when Paul wrote this letter. Paul had gone out into all the world under the command of Jesus, had gone into the region of Galatia, had planted churches, seen people come to Christ. Uh, and this is where this letter comes into it. He hears a few things that are going on in the church. He, after planting the church and seeing these babes to Christ suddenly be set free and find liberty and freedom in Jesus, a few things came against them. And we're going to get into that in a second. Stand fast, therefore, in liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't go back to where you came from. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. There were a group of people that came into the church and their message was this. It was, um, it's wonderful that you have found Christ. Jesus died on the cross. Yes, he did. He was buried. Yes, he was resurrected. Yes, he was. And it was powerful. And, and, and through him, you can have uh, access and find favour with God. And through him, you can be made right before God. But there's a few other things as well. There's a few other things that you must do too. The, the cross is definitely a part of it. They came in with a lot of truth. The cross is definitely a part of it. But there are a few other things that Paul has failed to pass on to you. And these brothers arrived at the church and said, we're here to help you take your faith to the next level. 
We're going to help you bring your faith into maturity by giving you that extra bit of information that Paul didn't give to you. And of course, uh, the two things that they were expected to obey was the law of Moses and the outward sign of circumcision. These were the two things that these people came on in. And they said, you must, yes, accept Christ, that's all right, but you must also obey the laws of Moses and you must be circumcised. Now, I could imagine, had the male population heard that in the initial gospel presentation, not many would have given their hearts to Christ. I know if I was in that room, I would have walked out straight away. Sorry, but it's, it's, it's not going to happen. And so these people come on in thinking that they're helping the church. In verse 3, Paul says, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You have fallen from grace. When I used to hear this phrase, fallen from grace in church, it was always in reference to somebody who had come to Jesus, had got saved in a youth group or something, had confessed their love for God, put their faith in God, had maybe run hard for a year or two, but then turned their back on Jesus and had walked back into their old life. That's what fallen from grace used to be described as in church. Paul's not doing Paul's not saying fallen from grace in that context. We're taking that a little bit out of context when we preach it that way. Paul's writing to a bunch of people like you and me sitting in church on Sunday, loving God, worshipping Jesus. They haven't walked away from him at all. They're, they're in fellowship with him. They're trying to maintain fellowship with God. This is who he's writing to. What he's saying is if you adopt a Jesus plus mentality, a gospel plus mentality, then you have fallen away from grace. It's all grace or it's all everything else. It's not a mix of grace and a mix of something else. And these, these believers, these brothers, had come into the church and had started to pollute the simple, basic gospel of Jesus. The death, burial, resurrection of Christ, that in itself is enough, and acceptance of that is all you need to make you right with God. You cannot get any more right with God than the moment you accept that simple truth. Nothing you do will add to that or take away from that. I had a friend of mine, he shared a story with me a few years ago, and uh, there was a missionary uh, team that went to Haiti, in uh, just off the America there. Uh, South America, Haiti, isn't it? Just off the coast, I think, of South America there. And they went down there, you would know, yeah. And they went down there, and uh, they, were, they were working amongst the villagers and the poor and so on. And the place where they went had no toilets, like we know toilets, you know. You sit down on a big bit of porcelain and stuff. It was a big hole in the ground they dug, and they put a big piece of plywood over the top, and they just cut a hole in the plywood, and everybody would just go to the plywood, and you would do your business. So anyway, this, this particular missionary guy one night, he walked over there and, 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 and went to find the hole and squatted down to do his business. As he did, a big tarantula spider came up from under the board, shot up his leg and attached itself to his buttock. As you would, he panicked. He jumped in the air, grabbed his butt with his hands like this and came back down. Problem is, he came back down, both his legs went through the hole and bang, he got stuck from here down through the hole hanging like this. He started screaming and yelling and yelling and some of the native people came along and they saw what was going on. And so a couple of them said, we're going to help him. This is what we're going to do. We're going to get one on this side of him and grab one arm and the other one stood on this side grab the other arm. And they said, right on the count of three, one, two, three, we're going to pull him out of the hole. Well, you can imagine what happened. They've gone, one, two. Instead of him coming up, the plyboard snapped in half and all three of them fell straight down into this massive big pit of, I don't even want to mention what was in there, and they fell down into this pit. One of them fell head first. 
He got so sick he was airlifted back to the United States for hospital treatment. That's a true story. Here's a picture of these two guys that came along to try to help this poor gentleman, to try to help him out of a difficult situation, to offer assistance, and all they ended up doing was dumping him in the stuff. That's exactly what Paul was confronting here in Galatians. These people had come along and said, we're going to help you in your faith. We're going to help you come to maturity. We're going to help you in your relationship with God. And here's how we're going to do it. You've got to start obeying the laws of Moses and you need to go out, all you men, and you need to get circumcised. And this was their offering to the Galatian churches. Paul heard this, distressed him immensely. And so that's what we have in the book of Galatians. We have Paul responding as a parent to his children who are being misled, led astray, led up the garden path as it were. And Paul writes this heart plea to the Galatians and says, guys, no, no, stand firm in the liberty that you have. Stand firm in the gospel message that you are accepted because of the cross of Jesus Christ completely separate and apart from any work that you could possibly do because nothing you can do can make you righteous in the sight of God. Nothing you can do can give you a just standing before a holy and righteous Father. No good work that you can perform, no spiritual service that you can perform is going to improve your standing before God. And Paul writes to them with great distress because he knows the minute we start adding things to the gospel message is the minute we begin to kill our spiritual life. It's the minute we begin to kill our spiritual life and we go from biblical-based relationship Christianity to becoming religious. We go from freedom to legalism. Paul was so adamant about this, he jumped on it straight away. How many of you know what um, the, the rat sack? You remember that, I don't know, do you still have this powder rat sack that you put down to kill rats? How many of you know that rat sack is 99% good corn? 99% of rat sack is good corn, you could eat it. It's 1% arsenic, but what is it that has the most power when a rat puts it in its belly? It's the arsenic that overrides it. 99% good stuff, but that 1% is enough to destroy and to kill. And that's what Paul is saying here. Legalism, works-based Christianity, it's it's enough. Don't even let it get a foothold in your life, because if it even gets a foothold, it can destroy your walk with God. If it even gets a foothold... It can take away your liberty, take away your freedom, bring you into a place of condemnation and guilt and ultimately isolate you from God. Go back with me for a a second really quick to Galatians chapter 1. Paul makes this amazing statement right at the start. (laughs) He says in chapter 1 verse 6, he says, I marvel. That word marvel is the same word that was used when people were astonished at the miracles of Jesus. Can you imagine being there, seeing Jesus touch, or call Lazarus out of the tomb and Lazarus raised Imagine how astonished you would be. Imagine the emotional charge that would run through you at that time. And this is the same word that Paul was using. This is how emotionally charged and, and astonished he is that you would throw away the liberty that Jesus offers you, the freedom to come before him for works and legalism. He can't believe it. I think in the modern world we live in today, particularly in Western society where we are brought up in a performance-based world, we don't marvel at it as much. We kind of allow a little bit of a mix. And if I'm honest, I've got that little bit of a mix in there. If I'm honest, it's there. I think we've all got just that little bit of a mix inside of us. It's 99% right, but there's just that 1%. 
That little bit of us that goes, look, it's almost too good to be true. I've got to do something. I've got to play my part in this. Well, yes, you do, but your part is to simply receive grace by faith. That's your part. Nothing else. Nothing else. Not to do, not to make happen, not to strive, not to strain, just simply to receive the goodness of God, to receive the grace of God. That's our part. And from that platform, we can go on to build a thriving uh, uh, Christian experience, a, a life-giving life, the kind of Christian life that people look at and go, I want what you've got. That's, what have you got? There's something about you that's different. Because they don't look at legalists and say that because they're all out there living workspace lives. They're all out there in a performance-based society. They're all striving to find peace, to find something. And they look in the church and, well, you're just striving to find peace. You're striving to find God. You're, you're doing the same things that we're doing, just that I'm trying to find it here and you're trying to find it in this thing called Christianity. One of the hallmarks of true believers should be that we have desisted our striving and our human efforts to try to get right with God. And we should come to that place of peace and of acceptance. And that only comes as we get a bigger and bigger and bigger understanding and revelation of what the cross was actually about. When we understand the power that was unleashed on the cross, when we understand the significance of that moment in history, we realise that there really is nothing that we can add to that. There's nothing that we could add to that. The best work you've possibly got to give to God to present before the Lord, as wonderful as what it is, as much fruit as what that work could produce, does not make you any more acceptable to God than the person who's doing the ugliest, least, most profitable thing for the kingdom makes them any less. It's grace through faith. And that's it. We struggle with that. Because we always feel, I was brought up uh, with my father, and if there's anything, anything good you, you, worth doing, you do it yourself. If you want to get anything in life, you've got to work for it. You've got to work hard for it. And I, and I, I agree with that. I, I, I agree with that in my work world. I agree with that in my sports world. Yep, you, you want to be, you know, you've got to work hard to, to get, to achieve, and so on. But when it comes to my faith, when it comes to my right standing before God, I don't have to do anything other than receive and believe the fact that somebody already did it. And I don't want to mix the two in together. And the minute I start doing that, I've fallen from grace. I've fallen from grace. Here's the insinuation that the message of these believers, it was number one, the blood of Jesus is not quite enough to make us right and acceptable to God. How, how wrong is that? When we think about that on the surface, we all go, shake our head and go, that's ridiculous, that's blasphemous, that's wrong. But that's the insinuation when we begin to add works to try to make us right before the Lord. We are saying that the blood of Jesus alone is not quite enough to make us right and acceptable to God. It's just, it was great, it was wonderful, it was powerful, but it's just not quite enough. There's something else. Which then leads us to the power of your human effort is on par with the power of the cross. Why? Because it's a combination of what Jesus did and what you are doing that make you right. So all of a sudden I'm saying that my works hold as much spiritual power and equality with God as the cross did. Now when I say that, it sounds blasphemous. It sounds ridiculous. But when I live a life of striving, when I live a life that still can't come to that place of accepting, I am accepted by God right now as much as I will ever be accepted by God. I will never be accepted more than what I am right now today standing here. It doesn't matter whether you had an argument with your uh, spouse or your partner on the way to church today. It doesn't matter whether you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It doesn't matter whether you kicked the dog in anger and frustration. 
It doesn't matter whether you road raged on the way here. You are no, you cannot be any more accepted by God than you are now. Because your acceptance, your justification, your right standing before him, your righteousness comes on the basis of faith alone. Accepting the cross of Jesus. So many of us put the cart before the horse and it kills us. We're trying to do things. I, I, I shared last week, those of you that were here, about when, when um, Jackie bought me those new clothes and she, she very strategically placed them on my bed. And I realised that she was trying to drop a hint to me that maybe I was a bit daggy and I should dress a little bit more suave and smart. So I put on those clothes. But I put on those clothes and I felt free to do it and I enjoyed doing it and there was a liberty in doing it because I did it out of a love response to the fact that this woman already loved me. Now, if I was putting on those clothes to try to get her to love me, how long do you think that would last? I can tell you now... How many, when, when, when you're younger, you might have been in these situations where you, you really liked that guy or you really liked that girl. And so I did it. I, there used to be this girl when I uh, sort of first started to hang around the church in Bower, and there was this girl there, and she was, came from a Christian family and was really holy and proper and everything was right. And I didn't come from that family and I was probably a little different to her. But you know what? I got, she was really pretty. I really was attracted to her physically. And she was a really nice person too. But I realised really quickly, if I'm going to get this girl, I've got to be somebody else. So I started to morph into this spiritual, holy, upright, upstanding member of the community, Alan. And you know what? It nearly worked. It nearly worked. We started dating. We, we lasted a, was it a week. <laughs> nearly worked. And the reason it ended was because one day on the weekend she said, would you like to go for a bike ride? You know how much I... Oh, that's just me. I'll go for a nice bike ride. But of course, yes, I've morphed into this man. I want this girl. So I said, yes, I'll go for my bike ride. So I went for a bike ride all around town with her on our two push bikes, you know. Every time I go past people, I'd say, the head go down there. Don't want no one to see me out having a bike ride with a girl. That's not real cool. Anyway, I did it. Went for a bike ride around town. Then we got back to her house. And her mum was at work. And it was just the two of us alone in the house. And we're sitting there and we're chatting. And then... The real me started to come up and I said to her, how would it be if I come over and gave you a kiss? <laughs> well, I don't think my mother would like that. So, oh, no worries, sweet. I don't even need to do that. It's fine. Anyway, we were broken up within two hours. But when we're doing things to try to get somebody's love and affection, it will only last so long. Before we get burnt out, we get tired. And it's the same with Christianity. It's the same with our relationship with God. If we are doing things, if you go to church just to try to get God to love you, just because you think it will make you more acceptable to God, you will find it frustrating. You will do it for X amount, but you will eventually get over it. You know why? Because deep down inside, that place in your spirit where peace resides, There'll always be something else. Always. If you pray and sacrifice your sleep, I'll get out of bed early in the morning. I'm going to get out of bed while it's still dark and I'm going to pray while it's dark because surely God's got to be into that stuff. I mean, if that doesn't impress God, because God knows I'm not a morning person, so if I can get up in dark and pray morning, God, that is incredible sacrifice on my part. That will prove my love for God. Well, if you're doing it for that reason, you're missing the point. You'll only do it for so long because guess what? God won't be impressed with it. He's not going to pat you on the back and go, man, that's that, wow. You're doing that, oh, jeez, you must. 
No, no, God looks at your heart and goes, what? You're trying to earn my love? So you don't trust the cross. So Jesus, my son, was not enough for you. So you feel like you've got something to add to this. It doesn't work like that. So the blood of Jesus is not quite enough to make us right, which leads into the power of our human efforts are on par with the power of the cross, which leads us into because Jesus' work is finished, in other words, his part in making us right is done, and your works are still ongoing, then you need to focus on what you do. So all of a sudden, the focus of my Christian experience becomes what I do. What I do for God. What I do in terms of my life. Am I sinning? Am I doing bad things? Am I doing good things? The focus then begins to shift to my activities and my performance. And logically it has to because Jesus' work is over. He's done his bit. And if it's a combination of both, he's finished his. Mine's not finished yet. I'm still here. So I've got to really focus on what I do. And we take our eyes off Jesus, we take our eyes off relationship, and we begin to focus too much on what we're doing. I heard a story about these three young guys, and and they were uh, walking through a a town, and they threw a rock, and they smashed a window. And they kept walking a couple of blocks, got around the corner, and the police caught up to them. And the three kids are going, oh, no, we're nicked, we're in all sorts of trouble. Mum and Dad are going to give it to us when they find out what we've done. Uh, What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Don't tell them your name. Don't tell them your name. Okay, come up with another name. Okay, another Officer walks up and goes, all right, we know you guys did it. We've got witnesses. Uh, son, what's your name? The first guy looks around madly and goes, uh, David. David who? David Jones. Sweet. No worries. He writes down David Jones. He goes to the next guy. He goes, right here, son, what's your name? He's frantically looking around. What? what is, oh, my name's Dick. Dick who? Uh, Dick Smith. Writes down Dick Smith. Comes to the third guy. He's panicking by this stage. All the best names have been taken. He's looking around. What's your name, son? He goes, oh, my name's Ken. Ken who? Tucky Fried Chicken. Sometimes focus can get you in all sorts of trouble. And when we're focused on the wrong things, we can find ourselves in all sorts of trouble. And that's what was happening here with the Galatians. They were taking their eyes off the cross and they were putting their eyes on their performance. They were being told that you've really got to watch what you do because out of that, if you can do everything right, life will come. How many of you know? If you're living life that way, enough will never, ever be enough. There's nothing in the Bible about how much prayer you should do a day. Nothing in the Bible about how many prayer meetings in a month you should go to. Nothing in the Bible about uh, uh, how often or how long or what days that you should do this. or should. There's nothing in there that tells you how many chapters of a Bible you should read. There's nothing in the Word of God. So it becomes very subjective. So if you've got a religious conscience or a legalistic conscience, how many of you know it will constantly push you further and further and further and further until eventually we snap? Eventually we snap. How many of you have heard the, you know, you tell people that you're a Christian, oh yeah, yeah, I tried that once. I tried that once. What do you mean you tried that once? What they're saying is I tried that, I tried legalism. I tried religion once. I tried, I did. It's the cross, man. It's the cross. It's not about what you did or didn't do. It's the cross. I remember when I got saved, my nan made the statement. She said, uh, uh, oh, you, you really needed that because of your background. That was what she said to me. She said, no, you really needed, needed, um, needed that because of your background. Needed what, nan? You really needed religion. Man, I don't need religion. I've got my own religion over here. I'm still chasing, doing, doing, doing. I've got my own works-based life over here. I don't need to jump over here into a religious, a Christian works-based lifestyle. That's not what it's about. Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus. It's about focusing on God. 
It's about keeping the cross central to everything that we do. Keeping the cross central to our life. Keeping that moment, keeping the cross central to who we are. Getting our value, our sense of value and our sense of worth from that moment in time. That God would do that for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. That when mankind was at his lowest, darkest, that God would give his highest and most pure. He cannot ascribe any more value to us. It's like me giving you a car that's worth infinity dollars and asking you to add value to that. How can you? It's worth infinity dollars. You can't add value to something worth infinity dollars because there's nothing greater than infinity. You are worth infinity dollars to God. You are worth infinity dollars right now. I know that you can, if I was to ask you why do you think God should love you right now? Probably human nature is we could rattle off three or four things. If I was to say to you, what do you think God's not happy with about you right now? We could probably rattle off things, write a list up our arm. Because it's human nature. It's just the way we think. Really, the answer to that question should be one thing. Why should God love me? The cross. The cross. That's it. I've got nothing else to offer. My righteous deeds and my activities are as filthy rags, it says. All, my, my, all the best I've got to offer is as filthy rags. In the actual ancient Hebrew, that was menstrual cloths. I don't mean to be gross, but that's the Hebrew word. The best I have to offer is like dirty menstrual cloth. So if you're talking about a holy and a righteous God, let's just imagine, let's use our imagination for a second. Let's imagine that, that, that the, God's righteousness is this. God's holiness is this, right? From there to there, that's as big as what God's is. Yep, let's just imagine. So in comparison, let's imagine that the best, most holy, perfect, clean works I have to offer in comparison to God's standard, they're probably about that. With me so far? Now, the dirtiest, worst deed I've got to offer is about that. Did you see how far I moved my finger? Probably not, because from where you're standing and where you're sitting, it doesn't make much of a difference between the best I've got to offer and the worst I've got to offer. When we're comparing ourselves and, how, and, and, and good and bad and right and wrong with how holy and perfect God is, let me tell you something. That's the difference from where God's sitting between your best and your worst. It's got nothing to do with that. I'm accepted because of what Christ did on the cross. There's nothing to be added to that. Any believer who focuses more on living a principled life than on the death of Jesus for our right standing with God needs to be careful of falling into legalism and a works-based Christianity. If there's anything in you that thinks you can add to your right standing with God, you need to be very, very careful that you don't end up like the Galatian church, chasing after something else, adopting a Jesus plus gospel. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I am the Alpha, the Omega. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. I'm the first, I'm the last. There is nothing in between there. There's nothing to add. There's nothing you can do to contribute to your own right standing with God. We need to understand this because when we understand this, when we get a revelation of God's love, when we get an understanding of the fact that right now you are right before God, you are as right as you will ever be right now. If we get that foundation right in our life, then we can go on and build a great Christian life. We can go on and do great things for God. If we get that foundation wrong, then we spend a whole life chasing our tail. A whole life chasing our tail. 
In Galatians 1, this is how Paul puts it, I marvel that you are turning away so soon. Now listen to his words. Verse 6. Can we put verse 6 up on there? I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. In other words, when you have a grace plus mentality, Paul doesn't say you're turning to this gospel from this gospel. He's saying you're turning from him. You're not substituting one theology for another theology. You're substituting a relationship with him for a different message. If it's grace plus, Paul, what Paul's effectively saying here is the minute it's grace plus, you have walked, you have walked away from Christ. You're not focused on him anymore. He still loves you. This is not a case of him not loving you. This doesn't mean that you're not going to heaven. It doesn't mean that you don't, you know, you're, you're not right with God. But what he's saying is you're missing the point. You've turned to a whole different message. You are putting yourself out of intimate relationship with Jesus. You are taking yourself out of intimacy. Your focus is wrong. You're focusing on the do's, don'ts. You're focusing on this other message over here when you should be focusing on him. Who called you? Let me ask you a question. When you pick up the Bible and you read the Bible, are you looking for Jesus? Or are you looking for the next thing you have to do? Or the next thing you need to stop doing? Pick up the Bible and we read it with our notepad and we have our quiet time and we don't stop until, oh, it says don't do that. Okay, I've got to. And I'll stop now because I found something that I shouldn't be doing anymore. Or I feel, oh, now I've got it, it says pray earnestly. Okay, so I've got to pray earnestly. So I stop when I find something that I need to do or something I need to stop doing. Jesus said in the book of John to the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that speak of me. But you will not come to me that you may have life. Life is found in a relationship with God. Life is found in simply accepting the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of God devoid of your works, devoid of your activities, devoid of all that stuff. You are accepted by God right now. You will never be accepted anymore by God. I don't care whether you live and spend the next 50 years of your life running a church or being a missionary in Pakistan or giving a million dollars to, to, of offerings and building funds or, or, or praying eight hours a day. It doesn't matter what you do. You will never, ever, 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 ever Be more accepted to God than you are right now, today, sitting in this place, 11.38am on Sunday morning in G-Bar. Isn't that amazing? When we get that right, then all the other things, they stop being chores. It's so different to do something out of a love response than to be doing something to get love. And we've got to be careful, especially in our modern Western church world, that we keep the cross central, that we don't allow teachings and ideologies. And, 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 you know, and this stuff can come from really good-meaning, well-meaning people. Now, when we think about these brothers that went in here to, to Galatia, they didn't go in and say the cross is oh, it's rubbish, Jesus didn't. No, they agreed. They said, no, nah, that's right. There's just a couple of other things that Paul has forgot to tell you. There's a couple of other things that you need. You know, we all want to go on to spiritual maturity, but what really is maturity? It's a good question. What is spiritual maturity? 
Oh, look, more Bi- maybe it's more Bible memorization. Maybe that's what it is. I know guys that can memorize the whole books of the Bible. I've got a, I know a guy who had a speaker come and speak on a school that we ran once in one. Lovely bloke, by the way, memorized the entire book of Romans, start to finish. He can, he can memorize the whole book. Mate, I'm flat out memorizing a verse. That's why, I got, that's why we have all these apps on our phones and that now. Just hit search, type in the word and hit search. There it is. He memorized the whole book of Romans. What is maturity? What makes me mature? It's a good question, I think. I'm not here to give an answer, but I think it's something we should all think about. What does spiritual maturity look like to you? Is it, is it, is it all the stuff we do? Are we looking at spiritually mature people as the ones who pray more or the ones who attend the most meetings or are the spiritually mature the ones who, you know, are the spiritually mature the ones who run churches? I'll say no. What is spiritual maturity? Whatever spiritual maturity is, I know what it's not. It's not sacrificing a simple, intimate relationship with God. That's not spiritual maturity. It's immaturity if you think you can achieve it by yourself. Spiritual maturity is about keeping our focus on God, understanding that our relationship with Jesus is all that really matters. There's nothing else we can do to make ourselves more commendable to God. Now, this has been going on for years and years too, by the way. Some of the great men and women of God in church history have struggled with this issue of trying to make themselves more commendable to God. Who's ever heard of uh, Simon Stolites? He was a member of a group called uh, the Athletes for God. And here's a couple of things that he did back. He was a monk in the 5th century. In order to gain uh, God's acceptance, they did all kinds of weird things. One of the things he did was he touched his head with his feet 1,244 times in succession. Because that made him more commendable to God. That's what he believed. There's a whole group of these guys. And they did things like that. He spent 37 years. He, he was walking one day and he found a, a, a rocky outcrop with a bit of a platform on top. He climbed up on top of it and spent 36 to 37 years lived on top of the platform. Just lived there. Slept. Did everything on top of the platform. Did not come down for 36, 37 years. Why? Because it would make him more commendable to God. Now we might not go to that extreme, but we do do things that we feel will make us more commendable to God. Martin Luther, who actually was challenged by this book of Galatians and came to the conclusion that, you know what, you can't buy forgiveness, you can't work your way into God, it's, it's salvation is grace through faith. He came to this revelation, and the book of Galatians was one of the things that he read that where God opened up his eyes to this. But you know what, early in his life, he used to impose things upon himself as well. He used to what he called fastings and overtime prayer, many hours of public confessions. These are all the things that he said he used to do. He made this statement. He said, I lost touch with Christ the Saviour and Comforter and made of him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. What a great word picture. I lost touch with Jesus the Saviour and the lover of my soul. And through getting into a works-based Christianity... I actually turned it around where Jesus was more like the jailer and the tormentor of my soul saying, that's not enough. You're not accepted yet. Do something else. Do something else. You're still not accepted yet. There's more. You're still not accepted. Do it again. Pray again. Fast more. Pray harder. Give more money. And he said, I turned this loving, gracious saviour, Jesus, into the jailer and the tormentor of my soul. What a great word picture. This is Martin Luther. You know, Throughout church history, there have been uh, vows of poverty. Has ever heard of vows of poverty where people actually take vows of poverty to become more commendable to God? 
I've got no problem with people who take a vow of poverty if the Lord speaks to you to do it, then you're just doing it out of obedience and love to him. That's great. But people take vows of poverty throughout church history as if being poor is going to make you more commendable to God. Go back into the Old Testament and you look at all the uh, Levitical laws and so on. How many of you know that the laws of God were there in place? There were laws set up specifically to stop the society from becoming poor. The laws are there to try to help nations stay out of poverty. So, But if we have a self-imposed form of poverty upon us, that will make us more commendable to God, even though God has, in his word, given us ways to not end up in poverty. Yes, you'll always have the poor. That's not, uh, Jesus said that you're always going to have the poor with you. But the original laws in the Old Testament that were set up we're there to try to avoid poverty. Follow what I'm saying. Obey my instruction. Be blessed. Do what I am. Blah, 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 blah. Look after this. Look at Poverty doesn't make us any more commendable to God. We've got vows of chastity. You know, people take vows of chastity, thinking it will make them more commendable to God. All that has done is ended up with all kinds of lawsuits and bad press in TV from people that maybe didn't have the spiritual gift of chastity upon their life. Well, if you don't have the spiritual gift of chastity, taking a personal vow to make yourself more accepted to God is not going to work. It's going to lead to frustration. It's going to lead to bad things. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. Vows of silence. Who's ever heard of people in church history taking vows of silence? Traditionally, it wasn't entered into much by women, but vows of silence. All you men were too scared to chuckle. Vows of silence. What did Jesus say? Go into all the world and mind the gospel. But we'll take a vow of silence and we'll say nothing because that will make us more commendable to God. That will make us more holy. Reminds me of the the young man that joined the monastery and took a vow of silence. And every year he was allowed two words. Allowed to say two words a year. At the end of the first year, the the, the head monk called him into his office and said, Rightio, you've got two words. What do you want to say? He said, bed hard. He said, Rightio, go on your way. He went away another 12 months in the monastery. Big vow of silence, said nothing. Came back a year later. The guy said to him, right, now what would you like to say? He said, food cold. Sent him back away. No worries. He went away, did his stuff for another 12 months in silence. Came back the third year. The guy said, what would you like to say this year? He said, I quit. And the head monk said, well, I'm, I'm glad you're doing that because all you've done is win since you got here. <laughs> Complain. There are two ways. There are two ways that we can choose. Two ways that we can approach our right standing with God. And they're very simple. One, we can strive to achieve it through our own works. Galatians 5, 2 and 3 says this, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. If you want to be made right by your own efforts, you are a debtor to obey everything. Dot every I and cross every T. If that's your choice, then that's the bar. That's the expectation from God. If you want to be made righteous by your own works, dot every I, cross every T, and do not miss a beat. James 2.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. If that's the righteousness you want, if that's the foundation of righteousness you strive for, you better be perfect. Because if you stumble in one area, then in the eyes of God you become an adulterous, murdering, thieving, blasphemous, you're the whole kit and caboodle. If you stumble in one area, if that's the way you choose to be right by God by your own works, then you better dot every I and cross every T. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So that's one option you have for your right standing before God. You can try to do it yourself. The good news is there's a second choice. We can receive it through the work of the cross. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I'll get Dean. Want to come back, Dean? Where's Dean? Okay. We're saved by grace through faith. Nothing you can add to that. You cannot look any prettier to God than you do now. I know some of us this morning got out of bed, we had a shower, did our hair, I washed my hair, put my spray in, had a shave, put on me Calvin Klein. Hey? I got Calvin Klein, yes I did. Jackie and the kids bought it for me. I come to church and I look pretty good. I'm saying that as someone who can't see myself. I'm just saying I look pretty good. My wife doesn't like this shirt. I love it. I'm saved by grace through faith. It's got nothing to do with me. I cannot look any better to God. I cannot be any more acceptable to God than I am right now. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says this. I want you to read this. I want you to look at the words. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Have a look at the words. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Let me tell you something. You have already been justified. You've already been justified. But you will never have peace with God. You will never have the peace that Jesus talks about. Jesus said, peace I give you, not a peace the world gives you. Peace I give you doesn't get taken away. It doesn't go up and down with your performance. When you're good, it's, it's there. When you, when you fail, the peace disappears. The peace is not like a yo-yo that you can throw away and bring back, throw away and bring back. Until you accept the fact that you have been justified, until you can accept that by faith, you will never have the peace of God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. I've got peace with God because I've already been justified. We've got to stop striving, stop trying to be justified before the Lord. You are. Cease from your striving, cease from the extra things, the additives. And it's hard to do. I, I know it's hard to do, especially in the world in which we live and the age in which we live. I've shared the story before, but I took my kids fishing a while back. And to cut a long story short, I, I loaned Johnny a fishing rod. He was holding a fishing rod while I was holding another rod, and he decided I was pulling in a fish for me. And I said to him, hold my rod while I bring yours in. And he got so excited about the, 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 the fish I was bringing up in his rod, he just sat mine down on the edge of the jetty and came over to me. I turned and looked at him, looked at my rod, Johnny, what are you doing? Grab my rod. It's in the water. You know? He's turned and looked at it, and as he did, the tip of the rod went, tink, tink, boom. My fishing rod went straight off the jetty, straight into the water. I ran over there all frustrated. Johnny, I told you to hold her. Started stripping off my clothes. I'm right down to my underpants about to dive in because it's just sitting there. And just as I got down to my undies, it went, boom, disappeared. Lost it, completely gone. Couldn't find it. I turned around to Johnny. I was angry. What did you... I told you not to put the rod down. Why did you... The rod down, Johnny. 
Don't you understand how valuable that rod is? Don't you understand I pay? Don't you? He looked up at me and he said, Oh, Dad, I'm sorry. And instantly compassion. And I turned to him and I said, That's right, mate, I forgive you. But straight away he turned around and he goes, Look at my fish, Dad. And I got angry. What do you mean? Don't you understand what you've done? I just... Don't you... Are you stupid? You just want to move on as if nothing happened? And the Holy Spirit spoke to me right there and he said to me, He's just accepted your grace. Now why can't you accept mine? It's all grace. I don't care what struggles you have. I don't care what failings you have. We bring them to the Lord. We repent. But we don't lose our right standing with God because that all comes by grace through faith. John 17, 23. Jesus prays for all believers and he prays this. He prays that uh, they would understand that you have loved them with the same love that you loved me. God loves you. I just want to leave you with this this morning. God loves you. God loves you. If you do not have peace with that, then I want to challenge you to go to the Lord. If you can't accept that and find peace in that simple truth, if you still feel like you've got to do something, you still feel like you've got to stop doing something. You're missing the point of the cross. You're missing the point of the cross. God wants you to have peace. That only comes by accepting you are justified right now. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for our place before you, God. I want to thank you this morning, Lord, that we are justified, God. We're not trying to get justified. We're not trying to find peace. We're not trying to find acceptance. Father, the minute we come to you, we have acceptance. Father, I thank you, Lord, that it's not dependent on how we feel, on what we do, on what we look like. Our acceptance all goes back to 2,000 years ago in that one moment in history where you died on the cross for us. And Father, I want to pray, God, if there's anybody here this morning and we recognise in our own world that little bit of the Jesus plus syndrome, God, we recognise that we love the cross, we value the cross, but there's something inside of us telling us, but you've also got to add this and add that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us and I pray that you would deliver us. I pray you would help us to break out of those bondages, break out of those things, Lord. Father, teach us how to stand firm in the liberty that you gave to us and not go back into those yokes of bondage, not go back into those performance-based scenarios, God. Thank you, Lord, that we are justified by faith through grace right now today. And I just declare that over each of us. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Well, feel free to hang around, grab some tea and coffee and have a chat with somebody you haven't chatted to before. Get to know your new best friend. If anyone would like prayer for anything this morning, we're just going to hang around up the front here. Um, we'd like to pray with you. Whether it's anything we've talked about this morning or maybe something else, we'd love to, to, to join with you on pray. So have a great week. Be blessed. We'll see you next week.